Jail is generally a short-term forced stay facility of some kind, operated at the local level. It's a place to keep people locally, and there are security measures and guards and such. But jails are not often built with long-duration inhabitants in mind, and are usually more of a central hub for a collection of programs like boot camps and work release programs and substance abuse programs, alongside a relatively small amount of space for holding inmates who are awaiting trial or serving short sentences. A prison, in the U.S. at least, is usually operated by either a state government or the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is a subdivision of the U.S. Department of Justice. The Federal Bureau of Prisons, or BOP, is responsible for inmates who have violated, or who are accused of having violated, federal law, which is the level of law that includes things like interstate commerce, intellectual property, tariffs, foreign relations, the military, money matters, and increasingly, from the beginning of the 20th century onward, crimes taking place within the realm of telecommunications, aviation, and pharmaceuticals. As of 1971, with the implementation of the Controlled Substances Act, which was signed into law by then-President Richard Nixon, the manufacture, importation, possession, use, and distribution of certain substances has become regulated under federal law. The U.S. government taking precedent over state governments when it came to drugs kind of set the tone for a lot of what we're seeing in the U.S. prison system today, which is something I will get into more later in this episode. There are five different security levels of prison here in the U.S., starting with federal prison camps, which are minimum security facilities that generally lack perimeter fences and other attributes we might typically associate with prisons. Federal correctional institutions are the next step up from that, and they have double-fenced perimeters. Most inmates live in some kind of dormitory building at this level, so it's still somewhat normalish and even vaguely comfortable for the people kept there. Then there are medium security correctional facilities and penitentiaries, which are similar with their double-fenced setup, but also typically include upgrades like electronic detection systems, and they do away with the aforementioned dormitories in favor of cells, like you see on television and in the movies. There are fewer comforts at this level, and substantially more security measures. Another step up from that, you have the high-security penitentiaries, which often swap out double fences for solid walls along the perimeter, and which feature many additional security upgrades throughout the facility due to the danger the inmates presumably pose to both those operating the facility and folks outside the facility should those inmates escape. And finally, there are federal correctional complexes, which usually include multiple levels of security, and even gender divisions, men's and women's prisons, in the same building. Facilities of this kind tend to be pretty secure, because they often have high security areas on location, and that sets the tone for the rest of the complex. 
So federal prisons operate broadly within those divisions with a designation of one through five, with one being the lowest security type of facility and five being the highest. State and local prisons generally operate with a three-tiered system, going from minimum to medium to maximum security. Some few states also have what's called a supermax facility, or a small portion of another facility that is reinforced and upgraded to supermax standards, which is the highest of the high security level, and which is generally reserved for murderers, high-level gang members, and people who threaten national security in some way. The U.S. federal government also has a supermax facility called ADX Florence, which is located in Florence, Colorado. This place is also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, that name referring to the former Supermax prison located on Alcatraz Island off the coast of San Francisco, which was closed as a prison in 1963 and which today operates as a somewhat morbid tourist attraction. Supermax prisons, I should mention, are massively controversial, as some people claim they violate the U.S. Constitution. Inmates are effectively kept isolated from all human contact up to 24 hours a day and treated in inhuman and degrading ways. This isolation is considered by some to be cruel and unusual punishment, which is a no-no constitutionally. But that hasn't stopped the government from using such facilities. A 2012 court case in which the Federal Bureau of Prisons was sued for their treatment of prisoners held at Supermax facilities was dismissed by the court. So these facilities at the Supermax level continue to operate today unabated. So that's jail and prison in the United States. But there are other terms used within this space beyond those two main terms that refer to different types of holding facilities, some of which are still used and some of which were used in the past, but which are no longer used today and generally for very good reasons. Correctional facility, for instance, is a euphemism for prison. Detention center is a term that encompasses any facility where people are detained against their will. So a prison and a jail and an internment camp and a concentration camp. These are all types of detention center. A remand center is a place where people are kept pre-trial, meaning it's a place that's not really a jail, but you still can't leave, and you can be questioned by police or other government officials while there. In some countries, this is a separate location. In the U.S., it's something that usually takes place at a police station or a separate portion of a government building. In the U.K., this is a term often reserved for pseudo-holding centers for juvenile offenders who are being temporarily held rather than being sent home pre-trial. The implication being that they would cause more trouble if left to their own devices. They might not come back for sentencing, or they might be in an unsafe situation if released back into the public. A dungeon was a medieval castle room or cell in which prisoners were held. And this room or cell, usually, but not always, was located underground. An oubliette, also called a bottle dungeon, is a secret dungeon, again, usually located underground, that is only accessible through a hatch or a hole in a high ceiling. 
Some oubliettes are otherwise similar to normal dungeons, while others, like one found in Warwick's Castle in central England, are so small that the person locked away inside them wouldn't be able to move at all, wouldn't even be able to turn around. The space is that claustrophobic and confining. So if a dungeon itself is not terrifying enough for you, an oubliette is a little something extra to add some flavor to your nightmares. What I want to talk about today is not oubliettes, thankfully. Instead, I want to discuss incarceration in general. And particularly, I want to talk about how the broader incarceration system works, how prisoners are perceived by the non-prisoner public, and how the prison population is utilized here in the United States, the country with the second highest incarceration rate in the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I want to kick off this episode with two articles, which are about different facets of the same broader topic. The first comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled The End of American Prison Visits, Jails and Face-to-Face Contact, and Families Suffer. This piece centers around a technology that's being implemented in a large number of prisons around the U.S. The figures are fuzzy on this, as the prisons and the company behind this technology aren't keen to talk stats to journalists, but it would seem that around 600 prisons countrywide have signed up to use it thus far. And the technology, for all intents and purposes, is Skype. But it's worse than Skype, because it doesn't work much of the time, and it requires relatively high-end gadgets to use it, and it costs $12.99 for a 20-minute video call. The lackluster performance and expense of the technology is not the only issue with its use, however. The software is being pitched as a means of allowing family members to see their incarcerated loved ones more frequently, lessening the need to come to the prison in person and all that entails. But in practice, this technology often immediately or eventually replaces in-person meetings with loved ones completely. Meaning, where once you might have been able to visit your family member or friend at the prison for free, you now have to spend $13 to see them for 20 minutes on what amounts to a really glitchy version of Skype. The argument in favor of the technology is that it drastically reduces the cost of operation for the police departments that use it. They can have more cops on the street rather than having to keep a bunch back at the prison to monitor in-person meetings, which apparently is a real security concern even when the visitor and visitee are separated by glass partitions. This service also brings in additional income for the police department. Though as noted in the article, it's estimated that most of them only receive about 10 to 20% of that $13 that is spent on the service. The company providing the software, Securus Technologies, which also provides a large number of other services to prisons, like secure charge-by-the-minute payphones, takes home the lion's share of those fees. So one of the issues being looked at here is what's the real motivation behind implementing this type of system? Is the implementation worth it based on what these prisons are hoping to accomplish? 
What are the downsides of that implementation, and is it even legal to take away in-person visitation rights? On that last question, at least, the answer in the United States seems to be yes, it is legal. The United Nations Nelson Mandela Rules, which outline the minimum basic guidelines for the treatment of prisoners according to the UN standards, say that in-person visitations should be allowed for prisoners held in UN member state prisons. But a unanimous 2003 U.S. Supreme Court decision basically said that as long as there's a rational reason for prison management to take away those rights, it's all good. And the argument from prison management in this case seems to be, well, those in-person visits just aren't worth the expense and headache. The chance for smuggling drugs or weapons or whatever via visitors or via corrupt guards while the prisoners are being moved around for these visits, it's too high a price to pay. The second article that I want to unspool here comes from NPR, and it's entitled, What's It Really Like to Work in a Prison Goat Milk Farm? We asked inmates. This article is interesting and a little bit strange because it's partially a summation of some of the issues surrounding prison labor, but it's also in part kind of a character-driven puff piece, which isn't to say it isn't valuable, but it's an odd contrast. A contrast that's jarring, but also one that arguably works for this particular subject matter. Because on one hand, we have a goat farm that sells goat milk to an artisanal cheesemaker, That cheese was sold at Whole Foods until someone found out there was prisoner labor involved, and Whole Foods then stopped carrying it because their customers were uncomfortable about that. That company is still making cheese, but the laborers milking the goats are still taking home a few dollars a day, which is way below the country's legal minimum wage. But this company being dropped by a powerful grocery chain like Whole Foods shows that there is market pushback against this particular way of doing business. At the same time, and here's where the fluffier side of this piece comes into play, the prisoners working at that goat farm, they love it across the board. They couldn't be more thrilled about their jobs. One former prisoner who worked at the prison goat farm went on to buy his own tribe of goats when he got out. And yes, a group of goats is often called a tribe, but it can also be called a trip, a flock, or a herd. So the prisoners who are still working at this prison goat farm would not want it any other way. The alternatives are all far worse in their minds. So what we have is a situation in which from the outside, by the rules of normal society, these prisoners are being taken advantage of. They're being used as slave labor by some estimations, often paid around 60 cents a day, which is why the few dollars a day at the goat farm is such a step up monetarily for those who can get that particular job. But from the inside, the logic is that you're going to have to work anyway, and you'll be doing terrible work, scrubbing floors with toothbrushes more or less, and you're going to be paid essentially nothing regardless. And when you're not working, you're sitting in your cell, So getting to make a little bit more money, and perhaps more importantly, being able to go outside, being able to play with delightful, charming little goats, to enjoy that kind of environmental variety, that's huge. That is relative bliss. These articles address two main issues that currently exist within the U.S. prison system, and which could be seen, depending on your standpoint, as valid, valuable innovations 
or as abuses that run roughshod over some of the most defenseless and devalued human beings in the country. And both pieces are particularly relevant right now because of the scale of the incarcerated population within the United States and the ever-growing presence of the corporate world in what's come to be known by some as the prison industrial complex. But before we get into the weeds on that, let's get some basic United States prison stats on the table. There's a data point from 2012, which hasn't been updated because it doesn't seem like good data sources are available from which to update it yet. But this data point is fascinating to me because of what it says about the U.S. prison system and other adjacent systems that plug into that larger mesh. So the surprising data point is that there are more people in the U.S. employed by the prison system than there are people involved at all levels of our agricultural system. Think about that for a second. There are more people involved in incarcerating human beings, locking them up and housing and managing and guarding them, than there are people involved in feeding the entire country's population. Nearly a third of a billion people. That's remarkable to me. But the more you look into the scope and scale of incarceration in the U.S., the more you realize that this probably shouldn't be super surprising. Imprisoning people and all of the responsibilities and opportunities that orbit the practice of imprisoning people is one of our major growth industries. A quote from the nonpartisan nonprofit organization, Prison Policy, quote, The American criminal justice system holds more than 2.3 million people in 1,719 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 901 juvenile correction facilities, 3,163 local jails, and 76 Indian country jails, as well as in military prisons, immigration detention facilities, civil commitment centers, and prisons in the U.S. territories. End quote. Of that 2.3 million figure, 1.33 million are in state prisons, 630,000 are in local jails, 197,000 are in federal prisons, and the remainder is made up of youth facilities, territorial prisons, and military and immigration detention centers. I want to note real quick here that prisonpolicy.org is a great site for figures of this kind if you want raw data presented in a coherent fashion. They have really beautiful charts and graphs and such. They are a nonpartisan nonprofit, but they do have an editorial slant against the prison industrial complex. So their writings are generally against growing the prison industry, but I checked out their numbers and they have all been solid. So they're a good resource, even if you don't necessarily agree with them about what these numbers indicate. Another very interesting statistic is that one in five incarcerated people in the United States are locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. And the number of people who are arrested and sent through the system at the state and local levels, but not imprisoned, are even higher. These are people who get a record and pay fines and are punished in various ways that can destabilize their lives, potentially forever, which I'll talk about more in a little bit, but who are not locked up long term. They are fitted with a legal leash, but they're not put in a cage. 
Something to keep in mind when reading research on this subject is that the data delineates based on the most serious offense. So there are potentially a large number of people in prison for drug offenses who are also involved in some way in violent crimes, who are in these datasets as violent criminals rather than drug-related offense criminals. So that can skew the data, especially at the state and local levels, where drug-related imprisonment seems to be less of a problem than at the federal level. It's also important to note that the nature of plea bargains, where someone who's brought in for various crimes will plead guilty to a lesser crime for a reduced sentence, might be skewing some of these numbers. This sounds bizarre, I know, but some criminals will actually end up convicted for things that they didn't even do, because getting charged for some kind of drug crime, even if they didn't do anything drug-related, comes with a lesser sentence than something like murder or manslaughter very often. These numbers also vary based on how strict local law enforcement are about their paperwork and what details are required on that paperwork region by region. So our stats on this are decent, but we should still be skeptical of their absolute legitimacy for numerous reasons. Chances are high that we're still only seeing a small part of the big picture. One more subject I want to address early on here is what I'm going to call the mass incarceration economy. The United States has the second highest incarceration rate in the world after Seychelles. Seychelles has 799 people in prison per 100,000 people. And in the United States, we have 693 per 100,000, which Notably, is a figure that doesn't include people held at facilities in U.S. territories, in military facilities, in immigration and customs enforcement detention centers, in jails in Indian country, or in juvenile facilities. It's also worth noting that in 2014, the year these figures were collected, Seychelles only had a population of 92,000 people, so that 799 per 100,000 people stat is a little bit different there than in a far more populous place like the U.S. Also, there were perhaps dozens, perhaps up to a hundred Somali pirates incarcerated in Seychelles at the time those stats were taken, which no doubt also skewed the numbers a bit. Another caveat here is that we don't have good numbers for places like China, in part because they utilize labor camps alongside what we might consider traditional prison facilities. And we also have terrible stats, or no reliable stats at all, for places like North Korea, where legit information of any kind is very hard to come by. But in the countries for which we have at least semi-reliable data, the U.S. is number two in the world in terms of incarceration rate, which is something that I think most people would agree is not ideal, though we might disagree on the reasons why it's not ideal. And that is part of why there is so much talk in the news here in the U.S. about what's called criminal justice reform, which refers to changes in who we punish, what we punish them for, and how we punish them. Criminal justice reform is a big issue with many moving parts. But one way to try to understand it on a broad scale is to look at what happens to people who end up in the system early in their lives. It's a relatively simple matter for a youthful indiscretion, perhaps getting caught with marijuana or underage drinking or petty theft of some kind, or even for things like jaywalking, 
walking across the street where there's no crosswalk. It's simple for something like that to land your name in the system and to earn you a police record. And from there, you may accidentally or intentionally, because again, you're young and dumb at this moment in time that we're talking about, you might step out of line with your probationary rules. And if you violate probation, which is a period in which you're being watched extra close by the law, essentially, or if you fail to pay a fine or a ticket, if you violate that in some way, you may end up with a dramatically outsized punishment. Maybe you are then heavily fined. You get crippling marks on your record, or you may even be put in prison for a time. It's impossible to overstate the impact that having a criminal record can have on a person in the United States. You drank alcohol underage, got caught by the cops, were late for a sentencing hearing, and were crushed by a heftier sentence. From that point forward, potentially, you're unable to find employment, or at least not career-style employment. Maybe you can find minimum wage work somewhere, but your ability to find anything above that is significantly hindered. That then impacts your financial situation and your health, your level of stress, your relationships. Maybe you make other decisions then that reinforce this loop. Maybe you drink more. Maybe you turn to drugs for a mental vacation. Maybe your relationships become abusive. Maybe you become depressed. This spiral, whatever the specifics of it may be in any individual case, is a common component of people who end up stuck in this system. And addressing that spiral, deciding if it's fair, if it's equitable, and if it's not, what might be done about it, is a key issue when we are talking about criminal justice reform. Also important in discussions about reform is figuring out why, statistically, people of color are far more likely to end up in such a spiral compared to white people here in the United States. There are numerous theories about this, a lot of them self-serving, and I'm guessing that several of them are probably true in different ways, all parts of a larger story. But it's important to note, for now, that race, for whatever reason, is a component of this issue, and a vitally important one. If we do, in fact, consider equitable use of the law to be an important component of our justice system. This flywheel of crime and punishment that self-amplifies and self-perpetuates is also an economy all unto itself, because there are a lot of entities and a lot of people who make up those entities dependent on keeping an ever-increasing number of people in prison, on a legal leash, or otherwise within or adjacent to the incarceration system. President Eisenhower, before leaving office back in 1961, used the term military-industrial complex to define a relationship between the U.S. military and the arms industry that supplies it. This term encompassed the self-contained relationship between these two entities that, he worried, would keep us locked in a continuous cycle of war and bloodshed, because the corporations making the weapons would need us to use a lot of weapons in order for them to continue to survive and thrive, while the government itself, partially supported and augmented and protected by these industries, would want what's best for their arms dealer friends. If those friends go under, these governments might not have the best weapons, and then in turn, these arms corporations might not keep the political funds flowing for the politicians who are running those governments. So it's a very symbiotic relationship that then leads to predictable consequences. 
The prison industrial complex, then, is a relationship between the government-run prison systems and the corporations that keep that larger system operational by building technologies and providing services that are required for these agencies to do their job. And the same dependency that exists between the government and the arms dealers, it's theorized, exists in this space as well, along with the same potentially negative consequences. At some point, it might be untenable for those involved, both the agencies and the relevant corporations, to allow the prison population to fall beneath a particular percentile of the total population if they're both going to be able to continue to survive and thrive. Now, this sounds a bit like an overstatement, I know, but the data available about this relationship is compelling. And there are trade shows where corporations proudly display their wares to potential buyers, almost like tech companies showing off their products to customers at glossy conventions. Except in this case, it's corporations showing buyers for a local sheriff department and private prison operators their latest innovations in ankle bracelets and in jail cell furniture and in transparent typewriters, the latter being useful because prisoners would not be able to hide weapons or drugs inside the typewriter tucked amongst the keys without the guards knowing about it. I will link to a few articles about these trade shows, particularly those about a recent one that took place in Louisiana, the state with the highest incarceration rate in the United States. I'll link to those in the show notes. It's bizarre and interesting and wildly disconcerting reading about these types of conventions. And it's something that's super common within this burgeoning industry, but invisible to most of us outside law enforcement and the privatized incarceration industry. And that industry, private prisons, are another part of this entangled government corporation economy. And although there was a memo sent out by then U.S. Attorney General Sally Yates about the Justice Department ending or dramatically reducing its use of private prisons within the country when their contracts were up, this is still an industry with massive political influence. And they've managed, even after that memo, to lobby for increases in the duration of prison sentences and an increase in payments for their services, among other changes. Meaning... These are companies that are paying politicians to pass legislation that would cause more people to spend longer durations in prison because that would allow them to charge the government more for housing services and for guarding more prisoners. It is remarkable to me that this is all legal, but apparently it is. The lobbying system within the United States has spiraled into something quite different from what it was originally intended to be, I think. That is a big topic that warrants a completely separate episode, I think. But most people would agree that this is probably not what those who set up that system had in mind. Now, as with the expensive, glitchy version of Skype provided to prisons that I mentioned before, there are arguments in favor of privatizing prisons and prison services. The expensive prison Skype software claims that if the government tried to come up with their own version of the same, the bureaucracy involved would ensure that the software was even worse and the service provided even more costly. Outsourcing these types of things takes a lot of the responsibility and direct costs away from the bureaucrats and arguably allows for faster, more efficient scaling when scaling is necessary. Meaning, 
when the publicly available prison systems are full, or close to full, a privatized prison can be built and set up and made operational very quickly and at a lower cost than another government-run site. Further, the cost per prisoner will almost always be lower than going with a government-run prison because of the many layers of bureaucracy involved and because the construction and operation will be, at least in theory, economically competitive rather than managed by what amounts to a monopoly. Further, it's important to note that private prisons make up a relatively small percentage of all U.S. prisons. According to the ACLU, as of 2015, which is the most recent data available, 7% of state prisoners and 18% of federal prisoners are kept in private prisons. Almost 75% of federal immigration detainees are held in private facilities. We don't have exact numbers available on that facet of the industry, nor do we have any idea about how many people are held in local jails in Texas, Louisiana, or a handful of other states that are not required to make that information public. But the point still holds that although there are a lot of issues with private prisons, they make up a relatively small percentage of all U.S. prisons. The number of private prisons being utilized is ostensibly on the downswing, and use of private prisons can, in fact, save the government a lot of money and provide stressed areas quick relief, potentially allowing for better, safer services for everyone involved. Now, my bias here is that I actually understand the need for different types of infrastructure across many facets of society, and I can see the benefits of having some private services and facilities mixed in with the majority of state-run services and facilities being used for these purposes. I don't think one is inherently better than the other in all cases. In all industries and wings of government, we are at our best as a country, I think, when we take this on a case-by-case basis and take relative strengths and weaknesses into consideration each time we look at our options. But the propensity of incredibly bad privately run services, like that horrible Skype clone and the abusively expensive, not to mention shoddy, phone services run by the same company, that's incredibly bad policy in my estimation. That's going with a private provider out of laziness or corruption. Give the contract to a capable provider or keep it within the government. The people on the receiving end of these services should be thrilled with the upgrades, not devastated and economically bled dry by them. It's one thing to lock people up and have them serve a punishment decided upon within the letter of the law. It's another thing to take advantage of them and their families while they serve that sentence. Further, because of the nature of these industries, there's often no recourse for those involved. And because of the economic and influence flywheel of incarceration I mentioned earlier, the people who are impacted by these practices are often the least likely to have any power to do anything about it. They're more likely to be caught in a cycle of poverty, meaning they can't afford the lobbyists the companies making these products can afford, and in some cases they can't even vote, or they have a very difficult time voting. Which means that even their supposedly inalienable right to help identify and remove from power the abusers of the system via the democratic process has been taken away. This isn't an issue unique to the United States, of course. There are many countries in which private prisons and private corporations serving the needs of government prisons 
are normal enough that they aren't even commented upon unless some major mistake is made or some major new law is passed, quite often in favor of allowing for more privatization within this space. The UK and Australia have had their own controversies surrounding this issue in recent years, as have several European Union members. France, for instance, has a long history of utilizing a semi-private system within their Justice Department, and as a consequence, they have had a series of small and large scandals related to this industry. And things get even more complicated when we add to this mix the issue of labor within prisons. These systems are essentially coercing prisoners to work during their sentence, and to do that work in a way that is profitable for some non-governmental entity, like a corporation. The conflict of interest potential here is probably pretty obvious, but let's lay it out clearly regardless. We have a population of people who are coerced and doing labor for pennies on the dollar, for a variety of industries, for the profit of those industries, and for the profit of the prisons themselves. The incentives, then, become aligned with keeping the prisons filled. And those incentives are present for the prisons and the people working for the prisons, as I mentioned before, but also for these companies from other non-prison-related industries, these clothing companies, these dry goods manufacturers, these cheese makers. These companies suddenly have cheap labor available, and it makes sense that they wouldn't want to do anything that would cause them to lose that. Now, do I think the artisanal goat cheese industry is going to start lobbying for heavier sentences for prisoners so that they can be certain that their labor pool doesn't diminish? I don't know, probably not. Not overtly, at least. But isn't it probably pretty likely that these industries will do what they can, at least on the down low, to ensure that nothing shakes up this status quo, to make sure that their labor supply, this incredibly cheap labor supply, won't dry up for some reason? I mean, I think it's pretty rational to assume that that's exactly what they would do. They're a business. It makes perfect sense that they would try to lock in their budgetary conditions, that they would do what they can to ensure that they don't have to pay a different group of people more money. And just as we have clear evidence of the private prisons petitioning the government via lobbying and their insider political influence, we also have clear evidence that some of the beneficiaries of this cheap labor have taken an interest in legislation that reinforces existing prison policies, essentially blocking or disincentivizing prison reform that would lead to fewer people in prison. So while the goat cheese makers of the world may not be manipulating the system in the same way companies that make ankle monitors for prisoners are manipulating the system, there are still methods by which they can ensure their labor pool sticks around by quietly helping to keep things the same as they are today, by hamstringing legislation that might be beneficial in many different ways for society, but not to their bottom line. Now, on top of all of that, which again is happening all around the world in different ways, in the U.S. we have the added complication that many policing and incarceration policies more heavily impact people of color. Black and Hispanic communities in particular make up an inordinate percentage of the inmate population here. There are a lot of reasons for this, but the best data on the subject indicate that a collection of infrastructural issues 
are the most likely culprits. Most of them very small things that compound to become very big things. I already mentioned the issue where a small dalliance can subject a person to a lifetime within the criminal justice system. But alongside that issue, there is unequal treatment of different groups by police, even those who ostensibly are attempting to avoid racial profiling, and who might even suffer punishment for racial profiling if it can be proved that they're doing it. Even the people who genuinely seem to be trying to avoid racial profiling of any kind, because of the system within which they're working, there is still unequal treatment for different groups of people. Stop and frisk is a good microcosm example of what inequality can look like within law enforcement, and how a seemingly equitable method can actually lead to outcomes that are inequitable. Stop and Frisk was a strategy used by police officers in New York City up until recently. It was deemed to be unconstitutional within the city in 2013. And though there was an appeal by Mayor Bloomberg to keep it from being phased out, that appeal was dropped and the unconstitutional status stuck. This strategy essentially involved halting people on the street, usually randomly, to feel them up for weapons or drugs or anything else that might be illegal. But although this policy was meant to be primarily random, except for rare cases in which the police officer doing the frisking thought they saw something dangerous, a weapon or whatnot, on somebody, in 2010, African Americans made up 52% of all people stopped and frisked. So over half of all people stopped and frisked were African Americans, but the black community only made up 25% of the population in that area. White people, who made up 33% of the total population of the city at the time, only made up 10% of those stopped. And Asians, who made up 13% of the total population, only amounted to 3% of those stopped. The Latino population was the only group close to being proportionately targeted by this program, making up 29% of the total population and 31% of those stopped and frisked. The disproportionality here is the issue. You could debate the merits of something like stop and frisk versus the potential freedom-reducing oversteps that can result from it. But when one group is targeted more than others, even if only subconsciously, as some police claimed they weren't targeting African Americans any more than anyone else, at least consciously, if you frisk more, you will find more. And the same is true of traffic stops, of other random stops on the street, and any other type of interaction between a civilian and a police officer. A study published in 2016 found that black people are more likely to be killed by police. But this seems to be the case because black people are more likely to be stopped by them in the first place and to have interactions with police in general. If you look at the proportion of shootings and other types of violence against civilians by police, you find that it's pretty equal across all races, proportionately at least. So increase the number of stops of a particular group, and you're going to have more injuries, more deaths, more violence in general perpetrated by police against that group. There is, of course, the potential subtopic here about white supremacy within the United States police force, and how many of these mistakes, these accidents by police against civilians might not be so accidental. 
There are many, many, way too many anecdotal cases of this happening that later proved to be the case where there was racism involved. There was intentional injury and death by these police officers, and a shameful number of them were never punished for that. But I could not find any good data to indicate the scope of the problem above and beyond these horrible tragedies that you then hear about in the news anecdotally. So I'm going to leave that segue open for now as a very real and disturbing possibility in terms of being a more widespread thing. But the data that we do have already shows a kind of latent racism, but at the profiling stage rather than at the post-interaction stage, meaning the numbers seem to support the idea that black people in particular are being targeted, but they're being targeted for interactions, for frisks and traffic stops rather than death or injury, which is obviously not compensation for all of the injuries and deaths. But if we can more accurately pinpoint the moment of failure within the system, which in this case seems to be front-loaded and potentially even subconscious or reflexive in many cases, we may be more likely to find solutions for these issues moving forward. Again, stop and frisk serves as a tantalizing microcosm for what happens throughout the rest of the system. That same bias and that same collection of processes that reinforces that bias, it extends outward from frisks all the way out to the way that we deal with drug use and even the way that we deal with things like assault, meaning that this type of bias, wherever it might be coming from and however it might be showing itself, it's found at all points within the justice system to varying degrees and in various ways. And the consequences of this bias seeps back out into society, reinforcing economic disparity, potentially negative societal norms, and even racially charged perceptions about different groups of people. In other words, if you look at the numbers and see that they indicate that there is a high proportion of African Americans within the U.S. prison system, that might support pre-existing biases that you hold about the African American community. Recognizing, though, that there are some very real structural issues that are reinforcing those numbers, that can help prevent that negative perception, and it can cast a light on the inequalities that lead to those numbers, those people being stuck inside a system that is in many ways, some no doubt purposeful and some no doubt accidental, biased against them. Another important facet of this conversation, especially within the U.S., is the so-called war on drugs. PolitiFact researched a claim made by a political commentator last year that African Americans are six times more likely to go to prison for drug offenses than white people. PolitiFact ran those numbers and compared some stats. I will link to that information in the show notes. And they found that, yeah, black people are 5.8 times more likely to go to prison for drug-related offenses than white people in the United States. They then asked a law professor why this might be the case, and he said, quote, Whites are more likely to sell to people they know, and they much more often sell behind closed doors. Blacks sell to people they don't know and in public, which makes them vastly easier to arrest, end quote. I would add... To that comment that cities where things like marijuana are legal are disproportionately white areas, while cities that face staunch drug enforcement are disproportionately black. You could interpret the 
correlation and potential causality there a few different ways, but it is worth noting that at least back in Nixon's day, they were not shy about making clear what the war on drugs here in the United States was really about. Former Nixon domestic policy advisor John Ehrlichman is quoted as saying the following on the subject. For a piece in a 2016 edition of Harper's Magazine, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So, I think it's very reasonable, especially if you are of the mind to solve some of these structural problems, to understand exactly where the flaws are rather than potentially misattributing them in a more satisfying or politically savvy but less accurate direction. But at the same time, to quote Joseph Heller in his book Catch-22, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after you. Or in this case, just because the stats indicate that there's primarily front-loaded bias doesn't mean that other biases and even outright systemic prejudice doesn't also potentially exist. It's easy to imbibe news on this subject in isolation from all relevant subtopics, but discussions about prison and the prison-industrial complex are incomplete without consideration of these supporting facets. It's important that we ask ourselves, perhaps above all else, what exactly we're trying to accomplish when it comes to incarceration. Because the systems we have in place seem scattershot, like they're trying to solve a bunch of different problems and not tackling any one of them particularly well. Do we want to rehabilitate those who enter the justice system? Do we simply want to punish them and potentially dissuade future criminals from breaking the law as a consequence of that punishment? Do we want to keep a certain percentage of the population in prison to keep that infrastructure that we've built economically viable? Or do we want to build something that could theoretically, someday, shrink down to a small fraction of its current size? Or even something that looks nothing like the prison system of today, where people are provided with assistance and training and counseling and the like, rather than punishment? How might policing policies be adjusted to ensure that cops are able to stay safe themselves while they help the rest of us, all of us, in all communities, feel safe as well? And what other connected systems might we need to adjust to ensure that we're all treated equitably by the police and the larger justice system? How might we tweak the law, economics, education, city infrastructure, and any number of other things to get better results in this space? And how might we alter our conception of the word better in this context so we end up with more optimal outcomes rather than successes measured by our current, almost certainly flawed, metrics? These are all questions worth asking, privately between ourselves, but also of our politicians and of businesses. 
We're all tied together by this facet of civilization, by law and order. So it's probably a good idea to take the time and invest the resources to ensure that everyone's getting what they need from this system. And they're getting what they need in a way that does not create new victims as a trade-off. The book that I'd like to recommend today is the new book by Andy Weir, the guy who wrote The Martian, which many of you have probably heard of. It was turned into a movie with Matt Damon in it. And his new book is called Artemis. And Artemis is very similar to The Martian in many ways. It's similar in the sense that he clearly took a lot of time to understand the technology behind the space industry. And it's similar in that the main character, the protagonist, is very strange and funny and sassy in a lot of different ways. In this case, the protagonist is a smuggler living within a station on the moon. And she finds herself ensnared in kind of a conspiracy. And as is typical of Andy Weir's characters, she then has to use her ingenuity and some would say flawed, some would say funny personality traits to find a solution to that involvement. This book, to me, was also quite similar to Ready Player One, which is also being turned into a movie, I think being made by Steven Spielberg, in that it definitely has some hard sci-fi elements in that the components of it were very well thought out and the politics and things even are very believable, but it's also just very easy reading and it's a whole lot of fun. There's not a lot of Game of Thrones style characters and political maneuverings to learn. You can just dive right in and kind of enjoy it. It's also a pretty quick read as science fiction tomes go. So if you're looking for something fun and interesting, but which is also quite easy reading, which may or may not be turned into a movie at some point, Artemis by Andy Weir is a very good option to check out. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can also find a list of the books that I've written there. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of Let's Know Things at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook. And at Colin is my name on places like Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.